Well, Happy New Year. As I said, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Roswell, and I'd like to invite you into the reading of this morning's scripture in the book of Mark, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible at all, or if you don't have a Bible with you, we have them in the back. So we've got some people that will be more than glad to hand them to you. Just raise your hand, because you're going to want to follow along as we're in the book of Mark. So a um, couple up front here. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, take it home with you. We have multiple, and uh, the font is tiny. So if you've got an old like me, get some glasses, because the Word of God is awesome, but you've got to be able to see it. So Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Well, New Year is filled with all kinds of expectations. Hopefully you've done the appropriate thing and put all kinds of expectations on yourself about the kind of person you're going to become this year. It's fitting. We all do it. Even the people that say that they're not going to do it, you know you do it secretly in your heart. So the better version of yourself is on its way. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced the better version of myself is on their way. So that's good news. I lost my voice earlier this morning, so it's going to be fun to see if it sustains itself throughout. I may just get quiet after a while. New Year also brings us to new beginnings, and we get to begin this year with, um, with a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, where we come face to face with the real Jesus. Jesus as he is. And the reason we're going to be lingering in this book for, honestly, the better part of 2019 is, is because... It's rooted in the foundational Christian idea that Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection is the central event in human history. And as such, it forms this central organizing principle for our lives now. As my good buddy Tim Keller says, the whole story of the world and of how we fit into it 
is most clearly understood through a careful, direct look at the story of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. Our purpose in the series is is to try and show through both the words and the actions, and particularly the actions, how beautifully and compellingly Jesus' life helps us make sense of our own life. Mark focuses, he focuses on action. He doesn't actually report a ton of what Jesus says, though there's plenty about what Jesus said, but Mark is on the move. He writes his book in the present tense, and he uses the word immediately 40 times, 40 plus times, actually. Immediately, immediately, immediately. This is like a fast action, rapid movement novel. Mark's doing something. He's wanting to emphasize that Jesus isn't just some banal historical figure, but that he's this living, active person, this living reality that speaks to us today. So, you can see from the very first sentence of the book, the very first book, very first verse in Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has broken in. He's broken into history, and things are never going to be the same. This is a new beginning. This, is, this Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has come to save his people, and beyond everyone else's expectation, this Messiah, this Christ, is the Son of God, Mark says. God himself. Deity and divinity come to walk and talk and be with and especially do amongst his people, amongst the very creation which he has made. But then you hit the second verse, and what you immediately see is that, that Mark, even though he's really not talking to Jews, ties this straight back into the Old Testament. He talks about this Jesus who is the answer to the prophets. This is not a new thing, and this is not a revamping of a thing that just didn't work out the first time. No, this is a continuation, a fulfillment of the longings and the vision and the promises that had happened from the very beginning of time. Through Mark, we're going to see that Jesus repeatedly redefines what the good life is. He redraws the line of what it means to be fulfilled, what it means to be happy, what it means to be alive. We'll see him redefining relationships. He's going to redefine money, power, and everything else in between. And in the midst of that, he's going to be challenging our status quo, your status quo with grace and with truth, which is the good news. Because how Jesus defines the good life, the life of the kingdom is what he would call that, is not how we might define the good life. Certainly not how some of the pundits of economics or or business or uh, those of of the educational world or the media, entertainment would, would describe what the good life is. Some might say that it's, you know, It's the Declaration of Independence. It's life, it's liberty, it's the pursuit of happiness, whatever that means. It's maybe just happiness, or maybe it's just the continued pursuit of happiness, but but that's gotta be the good life. Uh, For others, it's it's, it's centralized on the idea of being being a homeowner, of having having assets, or at least an asset, something, a place to call my own, a, a thing that I can declare that I know, that I know this is at least okay a sense of security and stability, 
like, like, like in Gone with the Wind, when everything comes back to Terra, it's all about the land. There's a sense of like, okay, this is the good life, come what may. For some, the good life is, is family. It's, it's having parents or, or a people or a clan that you come from that you're a part of or, or a spouse that is gonna love you and is at least gonna be a witness to all the events, the ups and downs of life or, or it's kids. It's, it's, being able to have, it's being able to have someone that you can pour your love into and to the best of your ability maybe shape a little bit and have some kind of legacy for after you're dead. That's the good life. It's at least having legacy. More and more, the good life seems to be described by, by freedom. Life I choose to live on my terms. A personally developed ethic of self-generated norms for my prosperity, for my sexuality, or for whatever social order there is. But for maybe for many or some in this room, the good life is just a life without trouble. That's the good life. Just, just the absence of pain, the things don't fall apart, and, and maybe there's just not hardship, and, and everything we do just kind of circled around the idea if there's a way in which we can minimize that, control it, or at least manipulate it to that end, there not be trouble. That's the good life, no trouble. So what about you? On January 6, 2019, how are you pursuing the good life? How are you defining the good life for you? What, what if-then propositions are you making in your soul? Are you talking about with God or with your spouse that if this happens or if I get that, if, if she changes or if, if, or, if, or if he finally comes through, if I can just quit this, or if I can accomplish that, then, then, then I will have the good life, life that is finally good. How are you defining the good life right now? How would your spouse, your friends, your kids tell us that you're defining the good life? Well, here's the promise that Jesus makes to us in the Gospel of Mark. But through his life, death, and resurrection, he is going to remind us over and over and over again that the life he offers, that the good that he invites us into is the very best. It's the most fulfilling, though sometimes it's surprising. It's the good life that God has for us as our Father, our King, and our Savior. So, with that in mind, we're going to jump into Mark the way Mark writes his book, and that means smack dab in the middle of the action. Mark is one of those books that doesn't have, one of the gospel writers that doesn't have any of the nativity, any of the, the, um, any of the growing up of Jesus, anything that happens with magi or with shepherds. He just jumps straight in with John. John the Baptist, the first denominationalist, um, or the baptizer is probably a more accurate way of doing it. He's unfortunately not a Baptist. Um, John was the one that was prophesied about. We read it in that passage from Isaiah. He's Elijah that was going to come ahead of the Messiah. He was going to prepare the way, and boy, did John do it. He's described just like Isaiah. Just like Isaiah is described in 1 Kings chapter 1, he's got this 
He's got this cloak of, of animal fur. He's got this leather belt just like Isaiah, just like Isaiah, just like Elijah. And um, he's the first... He's the first recorded like paleo diet Bible character, just eating like the best protein, plus clean Jewish protein, which is locusts, as we all know. And of course, a little honey to help the locusts get down. This is the uh, Bible breakfast of champions for sure. But, um, but John's inviting people to come to come out of their comfort, to come out of the places in which they have define their life as the good life and to identify themselves as the true Israel, as the renewed Israel of God, and to do so by preparing their hearts for the coming of God, for the return of the king, and but to do so by act, an act of repentance, a very, a very clear physical manifestation of the kind of heart that they want to have when the king arrives. This king that John keeps talking about, the one who is on his way. And John is powerful. He's the first voice in 400 years, and people are paying attention. Something is about to happen. This is the one that John says, he's so much more than I am that I am not even able to act like the least of the slaves and touch his sandals. Who, who is this then? I, I know you, we're sitting in 21st century. We know that this is about Jesus. Even the readers would have known this by now because John starts his book that way. But the people standing on the shores of the Jordan didn't know who is coming, who is this one. Is it God? Is actually God going to come down like he says in Isaiah 64 where he's going to open up, the, he's gonna tear open the sky, rend the heavens, he says, and I'm going to come down? Is that, is that who's showing up? And the answer is yes, but not the way you think. This, this prologue, this little section of, of John, this is full, it's, it's ripe with anticipation. Who is coming? When is he coming? It's as though all those questions are sitting in people's hearts, in people's minds as they're coming in and out of the Jordan, and Jesus shows up. Right there on the banks of the Jordan. He walks onto the scene, and in three short episodes, three short vignette, vignettes, sorry, my French creeped in there, three short vignettes, um, we're going to see that Jesus redefines identity, that Jesus redefines comfort, and that Jesus redefines purpose, that Jesus redefines identity, comfort, and purpose, and just like John, like this, you ready? Jesus redefines our identity, my identity, your identity. Verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, from nowhere, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately, there it is, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I want to take a moment here. Jesus appears and you know, if you've been awake, you kind of have a sense of who Jesus is. He's supposed to be the son of God. Why is he being baptized? You, you heard what John was saying. Come and be baptized for, for, the, for the repentance and, and forgiveness of your sins. Why is Jesus going to be baptized? He doesn't need to be cleansed or washed. He doesn't need to be purified or anointed. What, what's he doing there? One of the most important things in understanding the trajectory of Jesus' ministry in life is that Jesus is identifying as Israel 
He is the, the single point of reference, the representative of Israel as it should have been. He's the manifestation of what God had in mind all along when he called his people. And so Jesus is identifying with Israel, and so he comes to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness on behalf as a single representative for this people of God, the people that God longs for them to be. And so this is this inaugural act. It's this almost like a cosmic press conference that, that Jesus has right there on the banks of the Jordan River for everyone to see. Today it begins. And boy, does it begin. This scene, this, this moment of Jesus in the water with John the Baptist is, is a keystone moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I think it's one of the most powerful passages in any of the Gospels, and it's repeated in all of them. The heavens were torn open. I already quoted you the Isaiah 64. That's the expectation. God is coming. The heavens are going to be torn are going to be torn open. The next time that word torn is going to be used, you know when it is? It's when, it's, when, it's when Jesus breathes his last and the curtain that separates man from God gets torn in the temple. The holy of holy is revealed and access to God through Jesus Christ is granted. That's the next time that word is used in the book of Mark. The heavens are torn here. And when the heavens are torn, the spirit descends on him. Actually, the Greek is descends into him. The spirit of God, the very power of God, entering him, empowering him for all the things that are about to unfold with him and to him and through him. The very thing that takes place at Pentecost with the people of God. They start talking all kinds of tongues. And then God the Father speaks. And in this moment, we're brought in. We're given a peek, a glimpse of the kind of wondrous community of perfect love, of delight, of joy, of mutual glory that has been going on for all times. Since before the foundations of the world, the Trinity has been delighting in one another. And we get a snapshot of what this looks like, this glory that has existed between the members of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what does the Father say? You could read these words every single day. You are my beloved Son. The NIV says, you are my Son whom I love. At the center of all things, loved ones, is not chaos. It's not randomness. At the center of all things is not matter. The center of all things, at the foundation of the universe, is a relationship of love. A community of love that delights in one another. And in the words of the Father is the declaration, the unshakable declaration of identity, devotion, and affection like, well, like none has been uttered on this planet since. This is my beloved son. I shared this illustration uh, a couple years ago, but I, I don't know of a better one, at least in my world. Um, our son Nathan was, was playing football. I think it was eighth grade. And um, so, you know, eighth grade football. 
And he was playing defense, and uh, about halfway through the game, uh, the, he's, the opposition throws the ball, and he intercepts the ball. We'd been standing in the stands with the other parents. And suddenly, my bride starts jumping up and down and screaming at the top of her lungs. And I can't do it because I don't have a good voice today. But <laughs> she starts screaming. So he's running down the sideline with the ball, and she starts screaming, that's my boy, that's my boy, that's my boy. I just, I didn't, I didn't even know who this person was anymore. <laughs> the light identification, affection. I think what she was hoping is that he would hear her. That's just a microcosm, just, just a small moment. Some of you have had this with your own earthly fathers where maybe they've, they've looked at you and they've said those things, those, those words I think every man, every woman longs to hear from their father and that is, I'm proud of you, well done. Well done. It's the, it's the, it's the grabbing the shoulders of the younger boy or girl and saying, I love you. It doesn't matter what you do or what you choose. I love you. We, we know, right? We've tasted it. We've seen it. We've, we've had moments, versions of it, or we've longed for it. Or we've seen it in movies, and next thing you know, tears are falling down your cheeks. And so we know it, but this, this doesn't, none of those things capture the magnitude of the moment that's unfolding here. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. How much do you want to hear those words? In you, I am well pleased. You have my delight. You, you have my favor. You have my joy. You have my heart. It rests on you. It rests in you. The God of the universe declaring something so magnificent. And what's, you know what's crazy? Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't. I mean, so far, he's really just been bouncing around in his, in his family's business, and his home, and we know very little about the first 30 years. Nothing's happened. He hasn't done anything well done. Favor, why? You see, this declaration, this affirmation is, is one of who, who Christ is. It's worthy of delight and love and glory because of who he is, not because of what he's done. Though what he's done and what he will do is worthy of praise and worship and glory and honor. No doubt about that. It's because of who he is. It's his identity. And, and two things are taking place here. One, Jesus is being commissioned. He's being prepared. He's being empowered by the Spirit and he's hearing, he's hearing the voice that declares his restful identity who he is and where he stands, the security of what his love is and the delight of his father. But the second thing that's happening in this moment, the second thing that's being, that we're being invited into as we see this moment is because of what Jesus has done for us, that this declaration now applies to you. It applies to me. John chapter 1 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But listen, to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to be called son and daughter, who, who were born not of any of the things we would count on, not of the blood, uh, not, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. If you've received Christ, you've, you've been born of God. That's good news. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Loved ones, you have a new identity. In faith, in faith, you have this new identity, this new belonging, this declaration over you. Because you've put on Christ, this is true for you today. God looks on you and he declares, you, yes, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and you I am well pleased. Because you've been born of God through Christ. You've put on Christ, you are in Christ, and so you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased with you. This is your new identity. This is the truest thing about you. And if you don't let Jesus redefine your identity, then you're left to create it yourself. You're left believing that I am what I make of myself. You're a slave to your accomplishments, to your record, or your... Conversely, you're a victim of your failures. If you don't let Jesus redefine you, you're going to be left believing that you are what other people say. Whoever has a powerful voice in your life or maybe the most influential, you're a slave to other people's opinion. Your identity born in where you come from, your pedigree or the lack of pedigree. And maybe the pedigree you could attain or you could achieve, your titles, your, your tribe, your clan. You don't want to be from Galilee, you know. If Jesus doesn't redefine your identity, you're left deciding that you are what you feel like being. You get to define yourself, but you're really just a slave to your own whims, the changing values that, of course, emerge in you and around you and the shifting emotions and circumstances that manifest themselves. You end up adrift. An unstable area, an unstable sea. But it doesn't have to be that way. What is true of Jesus can be the truest thing about you. By faith, it already is. So the question is, will you respond to that invitation into the circle of love that the Trinity has been enjoying that's the invitation of the gospel every time. Is will you agree that the truest thing about you is what God declares about you? That's the invitation to good news. Invitation to delight and be delighted in to enter what some have called the dance. And to the degree that you do, to that degree will God redefine and Christ redefine your identity. So Jesus redefines our identity. 
And Jesus redefines our comfort. Look at the surprise turn. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What, what an abrupt shift. Just think about this. You are my beloved. The heavens are ripped open. Dove comes down. Power. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Shouldn't the next step be some kind of ushering into some kind of palace? Or shouldn't it be inviting him into the, the powerful context in Jerusalem for them to say, yes, you are the Messiah. You are the king. Wouldn't it be going to the priest and having himself be anointed? No. That's not what happens. Driven out. Driven out. By the Spirit. Immediately, of course, Mark. Into the desert to be tried and tempted by Satan. It's interesting, unlike Mark and I'm sorry, unlike a Matthew and, and Luke's versions and descriptions of the temptation, Mark doesn't talk about what the temptations are, what they look like, or what's happening in them. He basically just says, the temptations happened. Next, immediately. He's saying that the temptations happened. This happened and then the temptations happened. And so we, we see three things, three very simple and actually three pretty profound things in what Mark does talk about in this temptation. First, there's an initiator, the Spirit of God. The Spirit leaves. It says that Jesus is driven out. The Greek actually means thrust him out. That's, that's getting the boot. But this is not a random detour into trouble. Spirit of God leads the beloved Son of God into a fight, into, into a battle. He, take Jesus, he takes Jesus to the enemy. In this, we see that Jesus' temptation is not some unfortunate circumstance. It's not some unexpected event, some hardship that's come on him because of something that he's done or, or some other larger failure on his part. No. What happens to Jesus is divinely ordained. Did you hear that? What happens to Jesus is divinely ordained and guided. Just as much as what was declared and happened in the Jordan, so he is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And so there's an initiator and then there's a location. Jesus is taken into the wilderness. He's not taken into Jerusalem. He's not taken into some, some poshy place. He goes into the wilderness, the desert. This isn't like the forest. This is the desert. The place of utter desolation where dependence is the only option. Where all things must depend and be stripped away that God may be the rest, the one who rescues, may be the one who sustains and who satisfies. As with Israel, remember, Jesus as the representative of Israel. Just as Israel was taken into the, into the wilderness for 40 years, and just like Moses was up the mountain for 40 days, and, and just like Elijah was driven day and night up to Mount Horeb for 40 days, so Jesus is drawn into the wilderness. And each time, both in those circumstances in the Old Testament and right here, the wilderness was the proving ground. It's, it's both the test of faith and the promise of deliverance. The wilderness is both a test of faith 
and a promise of deliverance. There's all kinds of side points here about how God doesn't tempt, God tests. God tests so that your character may be strengthened. Satan tempts that your character may be destroyed. Those are not the same thing. They're different words, they're different things, so very important, but we don't have time for that. Temptation is also not sin, also a thing, but not something we have time to talk about. So Jesus is taken, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness, and the, the only the place where God must come through. Tempted by Satan, tested by God, and where his deliverance must come. And then there's an opponent, Satan, who's very real. He's not some general mythical concept, some idea about evil. No, he's, he's personal, and he's attacking He's tangible. And what he goes after is the very identity and relationship that's been founded, declared, and affirmed in the water. And by the way, that's still what he does today. That's what he does with you. It's probably what he's done today or yesterday or sometime this past week, definitely over Christmas. Precisely the kind of assault Satan makes on us. Did God really say? I mean, can you... Can you really be loved? If you were really loved, well, God would, or he wouldn't, I mean, right? Let's be honest. If God was good, this would not have happened to you. You see, they're old tricks. They just rephrased, regurgitated, retooled versions of the same lies, and we've all heard them. They've looked differently. They've sounded differently, but... But his lies are the same. His temptation is to abandon the good life that God promises, even in the wilderness, and to say, I will make my own good life. He can't be trusted. Some of the commentators have said that one of the reasons why, um, why Luke uses the, world, the words a wild animals is that at that time, a bunch of the Christians were being torn apart by wild animals in, by Nero in the, in the Colosseum and multiple Colosseums. It's as though Mark is wanting to declare to them, to remind them, maybe, maybe, their, maybe their faith is being tempted to drop, to recant beliefs. And what he's inviting them to do is what they can see in Jesus here, what we can see in Jesus here in the wilderness, being tempted, being taken there, is that having the full delight and love of the Father for him, he is thrust into very real threat, very real testing and very real hardship. And so take heart. And here is some of the best news because some of you, and I know you because I've gotten to know some of you. You've, you've, you've been in wilderness. You've walked through wilderness. You've been tested by the wilderness. And, it's, and that kind of forming and, and testing has, has forged something in you. Made something more robust, more powerful, often more humble in you. You've met the comfort of God in the desert and in that comfort has been redefined by God for you. And some of you are smack dab in the middle of the wilderness right now. And the desert is 
hard. You're being tested and you're being tempted to despair. The recurring message of the evil one for you to take care of yourself, to not trust God, to find the good life for yourself and go after that. Pursue happiness. There is a way. And those invitations, those calls to take care of yourself only matched by the wild animals of circumstances that just will not seem to change or get better. Maybe God is slipping away. Or the lingering vision of the good life is no longer on the radar and you don't exactly know how you're gonna make it. I think one of the things that these verses offer us is something really beautiful. It's this divine dichotomy It says that Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It says danger and temptation and provision and care. It's wild animals and angels. This is an invitation to remember that in your hour of need and your hour of need may be this hour or next hour or tomorrow that in your hour of need, God provides extra help. He does. He provides extra strength. He provides extra grace in order to enable us to persevere through. Jesus redefines comfort, not in the absence of struggle and temptation and trial, not in the absence of struggle, temptation, and trial, but as he sustains us in it with his power and his presence. God declares, you are my son, my daughter, I love you. And I'm well pleased with you. And because of that declaration, he says, therefore, take up your cross. This is actually how the Christian life works. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is how the Christian life works. The with God life is is a life of us rehearsing the reality of the identity that God has declared over us. So that, because of which, we then step into temptation, into trials, into struggles, and we move towards his purposes. We move and we take the fight to Satan uh, on his turf. I think one of the things that is so incredible about that scene is that the spirit takes Jesus to the fight. Most of us find ourselves struggling to believe that, that we could sustain, you stay away from, last thing you want to do is be around anything that would be evil. And the irony is that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And most of us operate the other way around. He who is around us is more powerful than who is in me. It's not true. But if you don't have a grounded identity, if you're not secure in that, well, then you're going to find yourself amidst trials and temptations and struggles, and and you're not going to know who you are. And, and, And it will be challenging. It will be tough. And so you'll be inclined to punch out, to pursue the good life in a different way. But God, in his kindness, took his son into the wilderness that he would show us the way into the wilderness and through the wilderness with a declaration upon our hearts. This is my son. 
And this is exactly what Jesus does. He comes out of the wilderness, having overcome this set of temptations. There will be many more on the road and there will be some in the garden. But having overcome these temptations, he assumes his purpose. He takes on what he was sent for. Luke 4, 43 says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus redefines our purpose. He redefines my purpose, he redefines your purpose, and you see it here in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He came proclaiming the good news. Jesus is God. It changes everything. You see how it's the gospel of Jesus Christ in verse one? It's the gospel of God that, that, that Christ proclaims. He proclaimed the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. It changes everything. That's the good news. He's God. And, and, and the kingdom is at hand. It's happening now. It's not some future thing. It's present and happening now in our midst. Not later. God's reign is available for participation in now. Today, for you, through you, in you. So jump in. And one of the ways that Jesus points us to jumping in is, is twofold. It's, it's repent and, and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. To repent is some of you know, is, is to turn around, it's to actually have a full change of heart, it's to, it's to go the other direction, it's to, but more significantly, it's, it's to let go of the former systems of self-salvation and self-determination that you've been clinging to, the ways in which you've been trying to make the good life work for you. That's, that's what repentance is, is saying, I have this way, and I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to cling to that anymore. And Jesus says you have to repent and you have to believe. It's fascinating that it's repent, then believe. It's almost like the sequence really, really matters. That, that you, until you let go, you can't actually really grasp on. And, and frankly, I wonder sometimes if in our own lives, when we're struggling with purpose, a sense of vitality and power in our spiritual life, if we're actually struggling with that because, because we're not really letting go, but we're like, I want the good life over here. Except it's too far apart. And so you kind of have to, you know, you kind of have to grab and then grab, and so you have the good life over here, and yes, and on Sunday, like, you're, you're all good life grabbing over here today, right? You're, you're all, yes, Jesus is, the, I want the good life that Jesus offers, but, but tomorrow or Thursday, you're going to be like, but also the good life that I have a plan for. And you can't have both. There is one good life, and it's the life of Christ, and it's, it's the good, and that's it. All others, Substitutes. In what ways, what, do you, what, what are you hanging on to? What, what form of the good life, what, what things have you not or are you not repenting of? Are you not letting go? What ways are you saving yourself or self-determining that you're like, I, I still got to have this, so I'm going to stretch. You're invited to repent today. Always to repent and to believe, to believe, to believe the good news that Jesus is God and it changes everything. Changes everything because it means that what he did for you changed everything about you. What he has for you is the real, true, and good life. And what he can walk you through, there is no thing that can harm you. Oh, you're going to be hurt in this life. Jesus told us we would. Don't have trouble. 
can't destroy you because you've been grounded in a declaration and you've been walked through trials and tribulations as you may be in right now so that you may be the kinds of people who grounded in the identity can start walking out and telling people about this Jesus, this good news, this, this euangelion, this the best, one of the best words in the scriptures, this, this good heralding, this good messaging, and, and that's what we're invited to be. That's what our purposes are. One of the primary purposes, Jesus said, I came so that I could proclaim the good news. Well, doggone it, if he came to proclaim the good news about himself, that's that's what we're invited to be, proclaimers of the good news, this, this good life that he's made possible for you. The truest thing about you today is that you're his son, you're his daughter. I don't, I don't know what's going on in your world, but, but that, that is immovable. And to the degree in which you cling to that, made possible by the cross, to that degree you'll be able to walk through the trials and become the kind of people who start declaring the good news of Jesus everywhere you go. That's our purpose. Jesus redefines purpose. The good life that you have for yourself is not as good as the good life he has for you. Let us seize his good life. This meal is, <laughs> it's the invitation to the good life. It's, it's a recall back. It's a, it's a reorienting of our hearts towards the one who says, I'm God and I came and I gave myself for you. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey and, and maybe you're going like, wait, Jesus claims to be God. That just seems extreme. Isn't he just a good teacher? And it's like a good teacher dying for people doesn't matter. But God himself, having lived this perfect life, identifying with Israel, the people of God who couldn't do it, try as they might, just like us, going to the cross, a perfect record offered to God in all of our good secondary good life stories being poured out on him, all the wrath of God being satisfied on him, in him, on his body, on the cross for you. And that's how, by the way, you know that you are sons and daughters. See, without this meal or what it represents, without the cross, like, you're not. You can't be. Your record's not good enough. Your good life is not a good life. But because of him, your life is a good life full of the identity of Christ in you. And so if you belong to Jesus, this is like a celebration meal. This is, this, is the best, this is the best news of your day. This is the best news of your week. And girded with this, we get to take the message that this represents to the people, to a lost and dying world that's longing for the true thing. The world's dying and longing for the true thing. They're, they're, they're going to different kinds of river Jordans and trying, but, but that's what you're longing for. And so if you need to repent, repent today. As you come and receive these elements, there may need to be some tangible repentance. There needs to be some letting go. There need to be some people you need to talk about what you need to let go of so that you can actually have accountability and freedom. I invite you to read through Mark as we're reading through Mark that you would see Jesus because you gotta see him if his identity is going to be rooted in you. He wants to redefine the good life for you. It's the best life. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. My, how you have loved us in Christ. And you've done everything that was necessary for us by his body on the tree. So you tore the heavens and you came down, all right. And then you were torn. That we may receive the power of God, the spirit of God, and the life of God in us. And so today we take this meal as a remembrance of your sacrifice for us and as a celebration of the life that we have in you, we take in your body and your blood 
this cup and this bread as a, as a remembering and as, as a declaration, as a proclamation that, that you're coming back for your people. And that all the hardships and the trials that, that you're gonna make all things new. And so Father, sustain us, we pray, through this meal and the grace that it covers in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. So come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.